So we go trying to do that, are we? Going up there? I think, I think so. So over the water and then take a right? Yes. Okay, well, should we try Is that? that? Right? What? <laughs> Inside a mountain, an exploration of the creative imagination through walking turns this time to the first World War poet and composer, Ivor Gurney. Gurney had so much promise when he enrolled as a student at the Royal College of Music. But after two years fighting in the trenches, being gassed at Passchendaele and long episodes of mental illness, he was committed to an asylum. He died 15 years later, having never again seen the Gloucestershire countryside, which shaped his completely original mind. But Kate Kennedy has written an exquisite, brilliantly researched book about Gurney, and in it, he finally gets the attention that he always deserved. And where else should Kate and I walk to discuss Gurney but Gloucestershire, following a map to find the fields and woods which he wrote about so often. That's the house we're looking for. Okay. Okay. Site of former canal basin. No wonder we can't find the canal. <laughs> I'm supposed to know that. What does a former canal look like? Gurney would have loved this, although he wouldn't have needed the map because he knew this landscape, you know, like the, the proverbial back of one's hand. He, he knew every, every twist and turn of these little paths in, the, in between the villages around Gloucestershire. And when he was in the asylum, maps were all he had. That was his only real link to, to the, unlocking the memory of these, these walks. So I think as we're standing on this funny little crick in the in the neck of the the River Severn, it's a, a little bend, and we're at Framelode now. Now, right ahead of us, or slightly to the right, is Gloucester, although we can't see it. So Gurney would have walked out from the centre of Gloucester right out to here, and in front of us, again following the path of the river, that is Longney. We can just see the the little village church nestled among the trees over there with some brown and white and black cows in front. And then behind that would be Minsterworth, apparently. Uh, now, Minsterworth was somewhere else that was very dear to Gurney's heart. His, his greatest, greatest friend and possibly his greatest love, the poet um, Will Harvey, F.W. Harvey, who uh, grew up in, in a lovely house called the Redlands in Minsterworth. And Gurney adopted the Harvey family, really, as a, as a surrogate family of his own. They were infinitely less troubled and trouble than his own family. And so he spent many, many months, really, living with the Harveys. In fact, they started to leave a window open for him downstairs so he could creep in at night when he would be walking the landscape in, in the dark and would sneak in like some kind of household pet and sleep on the sofa and they'd find him in the morning. So Minsterworth was a, a place of great happiness for him. He learnt to shoot, actually, shooting rabbits with Harvey in, in Harvey's gardens and the orchards there. That probably was the reason that he won the award of being the crack shot of his platoon because of his early, early practice in the Minsterworth orchards. There's something very soothing for us setting out on our walk. We're seeing the river, we're seeing the trees. It couldn't be more bucolic. And we've got our trusty map. But... One of the saddest episodes for me in your book is when you describe Helen Thomas, who was married to the poet Edward Thomas, going to the asylum to see Gurney, and so generously, it seems to me, from the way you describe it, giving him Edward Thomas's map, so at least he's got something to cling to that is of Gloucestershire, 
while he's locked away. Yeah, that's right. She she was an extraordinary woman, I think, and and much underrated. She was a, a very gentle soul and a very brave soul. She never even met Gurney before she visited him in the asylum. She just knew about him because uh, he, she'd been approached to get permission for him to set some of her, her then-dead husband, Edward Thomas's poems, to music. And Gurney had never met Thomas either, although he adored his work. He, he, Edward Thomas was killed um, in the trenches but before they ever had a chance to meet. But both Thomas and Gurney individually had loved the same walks and had walked the same paths around Gloucestershire. So they shared that without ever knowing it. And when Helen heard about this, this poor poet who, and composer who was locked up in an asylum, who'd survived when, when Thomas hadn't, she decided that she would go to the asylum, which is pretty forbidding for anybody, and visit him and see what she could make of him, see if she could bring him some kind of cheer or share something about Edward with him. Um, and so she went, she put on her most cheerful hat, <laughs> which, which in a very drab place is quite, quite, quite something to do, and um, was quite frightened by the, the sight of this shambling man in his pyjamas, who was very taciturn, wouldn't, wouldn't speak to her, wouldn't really engage. And then the second time she went, she hit on the idea of bringing these ordnance survey maps that had belonged to, to her husband, Edward. And she'd laid them out on his bed in this very austere little room, sort of cell-like room that he had. And he came to life and he, he traced with his finger all the little paths and little byways that, that he had walked and also that, that Edward Thomas had walked. And they shared, they shared that moment together. Helen, of course, was thinking about her husband. Gurney was thinking about his past and something something incredibly poignant and very beautiful took place that was beyond words in that transaction. Rafe Vaughan Williams, who taught Gurney at the Royal College, showed great loyalty and visited him in the asylum too. But some of his close friends, pained by his emaciated, vulnerable state and perhaps fearful of the asylum itself, made excuses not to go. There's a style coming up. I don't know if this is the beginning of Framelode or not. What do you think? I think that beautiful old stone house there with those gables is next to the church. Yes, that's the beginnings of Framelode. You know, Gurney, when he was a teenager in the organ loft at Gloucester Cathedral, was practising away in the, the, the gloom of the cathedral and uh, the light suddenly caught through the stained glass and shone through the east window and he flung down his music and said to, to the, the terribly well-behaved Herbert Howells, who was the, his companion up in the organ loft, oh God, I, I must go to Framelode. And he, he flung everything down, ran out of the organ loft and, and disappeared for three days, apparently, which, uh, which wasn't even unusual for him. That was just a, a, an, average, an average moment in Gurney's life. But I, I can kind of see why, you know, it is, it is glorious here, isn't it? got the, the brambles and the dog roses, the, the birds singing, the swifts circling above us and the peace that Gurney found in this little village and in, and in the others around here was, was really quite an, an antidote to his troubled soul. All this was denied him by his incarceration. His whole life as a, a poet and a composer was driven by the need to, to honour this landscape, to express what the beauty of places like this meant to him. And from, from being an undergraduate onwards, pretty much, it was, it was taken from him. He was either in the trenches in France and Flanders, very briefly back here, um, but then for, for 15 years locked up in a lunatic asylum, as they were then known. 
But do you know, I wonder whether, however absolutely disastrous that was for him, whether that passion to communicate what this landscape meant, that the power of it to him would have been so extreme had he had free reign to, to roam these, these fields and these, these little paths as we're doing now. Kate Kennedy's ability to understand the complex, creative mind of Gurney comes in part from the fact that she's both a literary scholar and a musician. She's able to read both his poetry and compositions from the inside out. Here she plays Gurney's most celebrated song, Sleep, with Simon Over on piano. Like Gurney himself, the piece is both mournful yet fleetingly soothing, although it's the deep longing which prevails in the end. Sleep, which Gurney composed when he was still only a student. We're used to the idea that writers and musicians turn to walking to summon their ideas. 
William Hazlitt said of Coleridge that he liked to compose in walking over uneven ground or breaking through the straggling branches of a copsewood, while Wordsworth always wrote, if he could, walking up and down a straight gravel walk or in some spot where the continuity of his verse met with no collateral interruption. But Ivor Gurney was different. Rather than simply use the rhythms of walking to evoke ideas or capture thoughts, Kate explains that he embedded the actual shapes of landscape into his verse and musical lines. It's hard to imagine Gurney without the walking and without the landscape because he, he sort of experienced landscape through his footfall and there is something of the pace of walking through his music and through his poetry, almost as if it's, it's a kind of heartbeat, an, an andante, a kind of a walking speed that's that is at the very essence of everything he writes in both genres. But also it's, it's the subject matter as well. So it's not just that he writes as if he's walking because a lot of the time he is. It's that landscape is what drives him. It, it's what quite literally in the last years of his life keeps him alive. He, he's, his whole raison d'etre is honouring Gloucestershire, honouring this landscape, which is just so beautiful. Um, it's what he lives for. It's, it's the subject matter of his poetry, the shapes and the contours of the hills are in his musical lines. So it's working on many levels. And I think also for him, it's a substitute family. You know, he lived right in the centre of Gloucester, but it was only a short walk and short cycle ride in those days out into these hills. And he was in a cramped, very dark little house with an extremely difficult mother who may be somewhere on the schizoid spectrum, if we can even say that at this kind of historical distance. Um, it was a very claustrophobic, very difficult childhood. And so he was only happy when he was outside. The landscape was, was his substitute family. There's a bit of one of his poems um, where he describes the hills as friends of mine and kindly. And, and the idea of Mother England and that the landscape of home becomes, becomes sort of anthropomorphised for him. It becomes his mother. It becomes the, the, the thing that he fights for, that he wants to protect by going to war. So all of that is, is wrapped up in landscape for Gurney. Plus the fact that from really quite an early age, certainly from his teenage years, he was trying to hold himself together psychologically. He was fighting depression, what he called neurasthenia, and he did it by exercise, by so kind of really quite severe exercise. So his walking is an escape from home, it's poetic and musical inspiration, but it's also a regime, it's trying to, to use endorphins to, to keep his mood stabilised. It was a kind of self-therapy. It's interesting what you say about his family, that somehow he exchanges family for walking, kind of re-encounters the familial via the landscape. Because what emerges in your book, actually, is the, is the kind of the bleakness, the darkness of his mother Florence, but also the unkindness of his brother Ronald. There doesn't seem to be any kind of natural affiliation between any of them. <laughs> it's, it's so hard to make these judgments from this kind of distance, but all we have of Ronald makes him appear to be a desperately unlikable character. He was vile to Gurney. He, there was a kind of anxiety, I think, about Gurney's mental illness. And there is a really key little moment where his brother Ronald writes, I've gone down the same path myself. You know, I've, I've gone a long way down the same path. In as much as admitting I too have struggled with mental illness and I'm not going to let this, you know, I'm not going to let this break our family and I'm going to punish my brother as a result. And the family was so troubled and his mother 
seemed to love them as babies, according to Goni's sister, but then didn't really know what to do with them, was very controlling, and as they became people in their own right, had terribly high expectations of them, and, but, but was also a very destructive force. I think she, you know, fundamentally, she was a, a deeply unhappy, frustrated woman. And, and that, so the, the poison of that, um, sort of infiltrates all, all four of the, the siblings as they grow up. There was so much that Gurney tried to control, principally his fragile mind, but there were no treatments available. Even in the asylum, the best they could come up with was deliberately infecting him with malaria, thinking it might help. But before his incarceration, walking became more and more important as Gurney tried to command himself to feel better. He resorted to exhausting expeditions of 30, 40, 50 miles, deliberately starving himself in preparation. The endorphins of, of extreme exercise, of long, long walks, walking through the night very often, and the, the punishment, the, the purging of his, his body, um, and the, the controlling of what goes into it, were all part of the same spectrum. He wanted to be sort of fit and lean and alive and awake and alive to all, all his experiences. He had a, a, a terrible fear of lethargy. And I think possibly that the lethargy that you feel after a huge meal, he equates with the kind of lethargy that he calls neurasthenia, which is depression, not being able to get out of bed from one day to the next. And so perhaps there is that sense that if he underfeeds himself, he will, he will stay alert, he will stay sort of able to work and able to experience the landscape and all the, the nuances of it that he wants to be attentive to. We're just crossing over a little tributary of the, of the River Severn here. <laughs> little rowing boat there and some willow trees bending over it. Very, very beautiful. It's clear then that Gurney's walks were a very different business to those undertaken by Wordsworth or Coleridge, although his attempts to control and purge himself do connect him to the self-denial of the poet Gerard Manny Hopkins, who once refused water for a week until his tongue went black and he collapsed. Interestingly, there's a connection too between the strange counterpoint rhythms of Gurney's verse and the multisyllabic sprung rhythm of Hopkins' nature poetry. But surely no one but Gurney would see music in a hedge. Now look at this here. Do you see the, the intricate patterns of this hedge? This is, this is the kind of thing that Gurney was in awe of. He, he had this constant double thinking all the time between the very classical, strict musical training he was receiving at the college and the wonderful law of nature that he learnt through people like James Harris, the lock keeper here in Framelode. And this ability to lay a hedge that's sort of weaving the branches together like counterpoint, to him looks like, looks like a Bach fugue. And he, he's just as appreciative of the skill of both. You know, weaving musical lines together, weaving willow and bramble together to, to create something so, so solid and so lovely and so, so organic. It does make me wonder the extent to which you think that he was a real modernist poet, that he wasn't the kind of poet that was looking back on a romanticised idea of the natural world. He was actually throwing forward to a quite radical new way of composing and, and of writing poetry. And just looking at this hedge makes me think that perhaps he's more of the modernist than perhaps he's been given credit for before. I think what Gurney is is an unconscious modernist. He just sees the world differently. He sees Bach in a hedge and he sees a hedge in Bach and that that is how he thinks. And and he's responding to his own mental disintegration through the majority of his adult life. So his poetry is a, 
is in fragments because that is how he feels the world and and it's about making associations that we would not normally make because again that that is what the world is to him and so he isn't uh, he is a modernist and if we had the vast majority of his manuscripts that aren't seen because they are still in boxes in an archive he would stand comparison with Pound with Eliot with Wyndham Lewis there's something so poignant about the dates of Gurney's poems and compositions. The poem Hedges, in which he sees the bark fugue, was written in 1923, by which time he'd already been incarcerated in the asylum for a year, and yet he summons the idea of the exquisitely woven hedge as though he was looking at it as he wrote. To me, the A major concerto has been dearer than ever before, because I saw one weave wonderful patterns of bright green, never clearer of April, whose hands nothing at all did deceive of laying right the stakes of bright green lopped off, spear-shaped and stuck, notched, crooked up. Wonder was quickened at workman's craftsmanship. But clumsy were the efforts of my stiff body to help him in the laying of bramble, ready of mind but clumsy of muscle in helping rip of clothes unheeded, torn hands, and his quick moving was never broken by any danger. His loving use of the bill or scythe was most deft and clear. Had my piano playing or counterpoint been so without fear, then indeed fame had been mine of most bright outshining. But never had I known singer or piano player so quick and sure in movement as this hedge layer, this gap mender of quiet courage unhastening. Gurney learned the intricacies of hedge laying, how to catch Elva and how to operate the canal's locks from the Framelode lockkeeper James Harris. Gurney had fled London and the Royal College after another mental collapse. In the absence of any other treatments or help, it seemed possible that the soothing familiar rhythms of the Gloucestershire countryside might offer him some relief and he loved James Harris, even writing a poem about him, which Kate read as we sat in the sun outside the ship inn in the village. The nights of winter netting birds in hedges, the stalking wild duck by down river sedges, the tricks of sailing, fashions of salmon netting, cunning of practice, the finding, doing, the getting, wisdom of every various season or light, fish running, tide running, plant learning and bird flight, shortcuts and watercress beds and all snaring touches, angling and line laying and wild beast brushes, badgers, stoats, foxes, the few snakes, care of ferrets, exactly known and judged of on their merits, bee swarming, wasp exterminating and bird stuffing. There was nothing he did not know, there was nothing, nothing. Some men are best seen in the full day shine, some in half-light or the dark starlight fine, but he, close in the deep chimney corner, seen shadow and bright flare, saturnine and lean, clouded with smoke, wrapped round with cloak of thought. He gave more of dessert to me, more than I ought, who was more used to book-pouring than bright life. When Gurney was completely overwhelmed at the Royal College of Music and and just simply couldn't cope in Kensington anymore, couldn't think about writing another fugue. He came here on his doctor's advice, in fact, to be a, a boarder in a spare room of, um, of Harris's. 
here at this little cottage here, the Lock House. And he followed James Harris around and he learnt about ferret keeping and the ways of the, of the canal and the patterns of life when you are very closely tied to the land and to the, to the tides. And then he'd go to the, the Ship Inn, which is the, the little pub around the corner in the evenings, and, and it would be full of, of pipe smoke. And he'd listen to these, these old chaps who'd you know, lived here all their lives and, and weren't literate, telling stories, telling folk stories, singing folk songs. And he was in absolute heaven. He would tuck himself into a little nook by the fire and, and just sit and listen. And, and for Gurney, that, that symbolised just... just perfection he was he was utterly happy it wasn't about learning and intellectual achievement it was in tune with the landscape it was wholesome undemanding and he was learning and he could admire their craftsmanship he was in awe of what James Harris knew and of the names of the plants and the that his intricate knowledge of of the workings of the land and and he deeply respected that sort of learning but of course while he could be here and be sailing his little boat that he'd bought from Harris that he and Harvey shared on the Severn here and, and watching the birds and the, the, the plants and, and learning about the animals, he also knew that part of his heart was at the Royal College of Music and that he did have a, a different life to return to. And eventually the pull of that became too much and he did return to London and picked up his studies again, refreshed from, from his brief this moment out of time spent here. The tragedy, though, is that it seems to me, reading your book and talking to you, that actually to isolate pure happy moments is actually quite a rare commodity as far as Gurney is concerned. And certainly when he got back from his service in the war, it was pretty much all downhill from there because he didn't get this reception that he, that he hoped for. He wasn't the returning in triumph both as a person or as a composer or as a poet, he never seemed ultimately to get the recognition that he deserved. To what extent do you think that he has been dismissed unfairly because people assume that if you're in an asylum of some kind, that anything you produce artistically can have no merit? It's shambolic, chaotic, and if it's any good, it's by accident. One of Gurney's many tragedies that, that mark his life is that the majority of his adult life was spent locked up um, with the label of insanity across everything that he achieved during that time. And, and if you write from within an asylum and there isn't the funds and there isn't the, the publicity and you don't have the profile that you should have because you're not able to interact with, with the intellectual world that you would have been at the centre of, then, then it's all under suspicion. It's left in a box, which is, which is what happens to, to the vast majority of Gurney's manuscripts, his poetry and his letters and his music. And, and so it falls to us a hundred years later to open those boxes and to make judgments and make value judgments, which of course is a desperately difficult and fraught thing to do. Because who are we to say what's quality and what's good? Who are we to say what's mad and what's sane writing? It's, Gurney's work is, is craftsmanly, it is, um, it is well constructed, it is eccentric, but then, you know, which, which poet or composer isn't? It's, and, and sometimes it's really quite conservative and well behaved. If we compare him with someone like Ezra Pounds, he is eminently sane, but he was writing in response to to severe mental illness that was encroaching more and more on him as the years progressed in the asylum. And he was writing in response to an institution that threatened to swallow him up. And he was a patient with a number. He wasn't uh, Ivor Gurney, the poet and composer. 
And even in his medical notes, we see his, his life's achievements being turned against him almost as symptoms. You know, he, he suffers delusions. He will sit with a cushion on his head to ward off the electrical waves. He claims to have been assistant organist at Gloucester Cathedral. They're, they're written as if in the same breath. So he has nothing other than what he can write. And yet that isn't reaching us in the outside world. It isn't really being published, just a trickle of publications during his years in the asylum. And his songs aren't being heard. So we have this morass of manuscripts all handwritten in no particular order and an endless amount of decisions to be made as to as to what is quality and what isn't what should reach the general public and what shouldn't and it's a it's a very very difficult and, and slow process and one that simply wouldn't have happened had he not had the great misfortune to to spend most of his life after those four critical years between the end of the war and 1922 when he was incarcerated locked up and completely hidden from public view this has been yet another of Ivor Gurney's tragedies, for so much of his work to have been unheard, unread until now. Perhaps an interrupted life and a fractured career are inevitable in a life hijacked by war and mental illness. But there's an irony in the fact that there were aspects of his wartime service that actually suited Gurney. It's easy to characterise him entirely by that categorisation of First World War poet. But in some ways, being in the army apparently soothed his deep anxieties, apart from the trauma of the fighting, of course. The interesting thing about Gurney is there's a, a, a little note that one of his sisters wrote saying that the, the war and the army would have been good for Gurney had he not had to go and fight, which of course is, a, is an occupational hazard in 1915 as it was then. But, but there's something in it. Gurney knew that he needed routine and organisation and, and he delights in the fact that he isn't alone in fighting this lethargy, this neurasthenia as he calls it. So when he's in training, he'll write, you know, I'm tired now, but I'm tired with many men. I, I, see, I see my tiredness reflected back around me. It's not just me anymore. And, and there's an enormous sense of relief for him in that. And he loved the routine of it. He loved the camaraderie of it. There's something very isolating about being a composition student at music college. You're sitting largely alone in a room all day just trying to write. And, and when your mental health is very fragile, that's, that's quite a dangerous, dangerous place to be. And so for Gurney, the army in many ways was, was brilliant. And he did hold himself together in a way that he couldn't have done at music college. However, that came with Ypres and the Somme. And, and nobody can survive that unscathed, however robust their, their mental health before they went. So he managed to, to hold out for about sort of 15 months, pretty much solidly at the front, before he got to a place where he was just simply so depressed, he, he couldn't wash, he couldn't really do anything. And, and it's fairly clear that he was sent back out of the line because, because he was unfit to serve. He was also exposed to some gas, but it's, it's a grey area as to how severe that was. There's a very sad and pathetic episode in the book where you describe him being cared for by a nurse called Annie. Mm -hmm. The sadness really comes from the fact that he's almost playing the part of being in love with her and of her being in love with him. But the really interesting kind of subtext to that is that he's trying to simulate the kind of life that he sees his friends having in an almost competitive way. What without really genuinely necessarily believing the whole romance to have any sort of substance to it. What, what do you read into that? 
Well, I think the, the reasons why any of us go into relationships can be very complicated. And Gurney had been at, at the front for you know, the best part of two years. He'd returned you know, shell-shocked, whatever that means, and in a desperate state, physically and mentally. And this attractive young woman had shown an interest in him in hospital and had been kind and she seemed wholesome and and, and she was his ticket to security and a, a domestic life. He could settle down with her. And as you say, he'd seen his friends, you know, the poet F.W. Harvey, who he just adored, who a, a Gloucestershire lad, and, um, and Herbert Howells both settled down with young women and starting to make their, their families and their homes together. And he wanted a piece of that security. He, he didn't know how to hold himself together, but he could, he could outsource that job to somebody else effectively. And Annie seemed like a, a perfect candidate. There's a, there's a very interesting little moment in a letter to Herbert Howells where he says, oh, oh Herbert, I, I forget my body when I'm walking with her. And there is the sense that he's just trying to, to shed himself as this burden of existing for him is so great. And that somehow the great thing about, about this new love is not her personality, it's the fact that she makes him forget what a trial it is to be him. Um, and that, you know, is probably not the best or strongest basis for a lasting relationship. And, and we don't know what happens. We know that he adores her and he, he has his cap badge, his regimental cap badge dipped in gold as a present for her. And he had very little money, so that would have absolutely wiped him out. But it goes wrong. She goes quiet on him. They, he goes up to visit her. It seems all right. And then shortly afterwards, contact is, is severed. And at that point, he really hits what you know the, the lowest point so far in his life i think he starts to hallucinate and believes he's communed with the spirit of beethoven and he goes and stands by by a riverside and tries to throw himself in and ironically can't find the courage and the, you know, the the irony of it wasn't lost on him that his comrades out of the front were being shot at trying to save their own lives constantly and there he was in warrington of all places unable to kill himself and and really the end of that relationship with Annie, I think, symbolises the end of the possibility of a normal, in inverted commas, secure life where he would be able to settle down as a civilian and build his career as a, a poet and composer. And, and I think he, he must have known at that point that, that life was just going to be incredibly difficult for him. Whether we see Ivor Gurney as a First World War poet or as a poet and composer who also went to war, there's no doubting the way that death gunfire, fear and glory all encroach on his work, as becomes clear when Kate Kennedy explains some of his work as she prepares to play his music on the cello. After the war, but before his incarceration, Gurney thought many times about suicide. After one such episode and confined to bed, he asked worryingly for a friend to send him A.E. Houseman's A Shropshire Lad, with all its talk of the glory of dying young. But as Kate explains, his setting of one of Houseman's poems, The Lads in Their Hundreds, has a deeply disturbing conclusion. In the very first song, he wrestles with this impulse towards life and this overwhelming impulse towards death. 
he takes the poems to task and he, he embraces them and attacks them. And so often he works against their rhythms. And there's one, for instance, called The Lads in Their Hundreds, uh, which begins, you know, the lads in their hundreds to Ludlow come in for the fair. And, and we see this progression of, of the lads coming in to Ludlow and, and the, the observer, whether it's Houseman or Gurney, standing near them saying, I wish one could know them. I wish there were tokens to tell the fortunate fellows um, basically who's going to die and who isn't, who's going to come back from the war and who isn't. And it ends um, with those who will die in their glory and never be old. So then this couldn't be more emotionally laden. And when a composer such as George Butterworth, who was killed in the trenches, sets it, he sets it as a beautiful, lyrical, very untroubled folk song pre-war. When Gurney sets it with the sounds of the trenches in his ears, he, he bangs us over the head with it. And he has a string quartet and a piano and a tenor banging away kind of um, accent after accent. So it's the lads in the hundreds to Ludlow come in for the fairs. <laughs> accent 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 underneath it the string quartet is going bang 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 um and then there's this incredible shift in mood to this this pulling out a sort of cinematic change in, in 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 angle to the i wish one could know them i wish there were tokens to tell which is very wistful and very yearning but then these military rhythms this kind of bang 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 comes back and, and it's this inexorable march to the front or march towards death. But he repeats that line, the lads that will die in their glory, the lads that will die in their glory, and he goes higher. And then he has a tenor completely unaccompanied as the string quartet sort of screeches to a halt and who then sings, and never be old. And there's a scrabble around in the quartet and then it ends like this. Two semi-quavers and a quaver. And it feels like machine gun fire. It feels to me that he's, he's always shot his own song. And at this point, he is a machine gunner. He's, he's used to playing around with rhythms. He writes the rhythms in his letters that he, he mucks around with, with, with his gun. And, and it ends, da-da-da. And it, it's, it's just so unmusical. It's, it's fabulously, strikingly unmusical for someone who is so respectful and so lyrical that he is making the point that there is this irreparable tension between glory and the will to die and and all the, the kind of the push towards the fronts that that these young men are subject to and the violence of it and the the inexorability of it and the, the how frightening that is and this is a very harmless poem that has been turned into a very very frightening song effectively even the very material of the poems and songs are marked by their encounter with the trenches such as the music for by a beer side the poem by John Macefield, which Gurney composed, one of his letters says, while lying on a sandbag and by the light of a stump of candle. This time, the ironic, sinister gunfire ricochet at the end of the lads in their hundreds is replaced by a completely different mood, which is easy to misinterpret. When he holds this piece in the archives, it's got a huge mud stain across the middle of it. It smells of the Somme. It's the most evocative, evocative object I've, I think I've ever held. It's, it, it speaks, its very kind of essence speaks of the condition as it was written in. And it, the, this, the poem by a Beerside, which is by John Maysfield, ends, it is most grand to die. And Gurney has the, the singer um, 
kind of shrieking it's 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 a it's a huge sort of triumphal in a sense ending on an on an e it goes um it is most grand fortissimo to and under this, it is most grand to die. He has the piano crashing along for for seven or eight bars. etc and it gradually calms down and calms down and calms down until the voice whispers pianissimo most grand most grand and the piano just subsides into these sort of c major chords ppp at the very end so it's barely present and and it's it's fascinating because in, it's so easy to read it as ironic this kind of crashing crashing gesture at least two or three times more than we would expect over and over and over again it's it's as if he doth protest too much there's too much of it too much grandeur and how could anyone writing in the midst of the Somme have any sense of belief in the idea that any of this is grand and so, of course, we read it as, a, as an ironic, you know, Wilfred Owen-esque statement on the futility and the mud and the blood and the guts and, and everything that we come to inherit in our understanding through culture of the First World War. But then in his letters, we find that actually he, he is all up for the grandeur of it. He does believe in it. And there's something mystical and wonderful about it and deeply complicated, but very... Uh, very seductive. So he talks about the image he has in mind when he's writing this, which is of some Greek hero, the body is laid out in front of him and pronouncing an oration over this, this prone dead hero. And it is grand to die and he absolutely means it. And all this kind of crash, 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 crash is, is a great gesture. And it's a, it's a gesture of holding up something about the fact that all this, this waste and these lives cut short does mean something. And I love this song just for that, just that he, he gives us a real lesson in not, not overthinking it, you know, that there is a grandeur in death, even in the Somme for Gurney, and we have to be alive to that just as much as we do the futility and the irony and the tragedy of it all. But it's fitting to end with a song for which Ivor Gurney wrote both words and music. Seven Meadows returns Gurney to the Gloucestershire landscape, which he addresses as though to an old friend. He wrote the words first in the trenches and, and just called them song. And then a week later, he set them to music. And the words are, are in fact, so the, the ones that inspired the title of my book, Dweller in Shadows, because he writes this little suicide note, really, or a goodbye note to the landscape, to the seven meadows. Only the wanderer knows England's graces, or can anew see clear, familiar faces. And who loves joy as he that dwells in shadows? Do not forget me quite, O seven meadows. And what's so poignant about it for me is that not only is it this very little claim, just don't, don't quite forget me, seven meadows. He's appealing to the landscape, not to people. But the, the, the landscape is woven into it. It's interlaced into it. The, the, the piano has this this sort of very gently meandering figure. And the vocal part, only the wanderer knows England's graces, 
is is set almost in the shapes of the hills, these sort of gentle contours going up and down against the undulations of the piano. And it's it's just terribly beautiful. So. Those England's graces. Or can a new see clear? And familiar faces. White, oh, seven meadows. Shit. 